Hey, welcome to Church Experience. Thank you so much for joining us today, our final week of our Storyteller teaching series. If it's your first time with us, we'd love to connect with you. The best way for us to do that is if you head over to churchexperience.tv connect. It's also a great place to go if you have any questions, any comments, any prayer requests. Love to hear from you, love to get back to you, and we'd love to be praying for you. Well, like I said, this is the final week of the Storyteller teaching series. This entire series has been so good. So let's jump into it. Let's all stand. Let's sing some songs of praise to our Heavenly Father. is hidden within your glory Jesus my strength is in you the odds are against me but you are for me Jesus my strength is in you power belongs to the one who was and is to come power belongs to our God
Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you to give you thanks for all the incredible blessings that you have given us, for the path that you put in our way to guide us, and for your love that comforts us. Lord, help us to understand your ways and be our rock, be our anchor. Lord Jesus, I just pray that uh, we get to know you better and see you for who you are through your word today. God, we lift your name up so, so high in this place. And we love you. It's in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we all have problems, but what we hate is when we have a problem that we can't diagnose or that we can't fix on our own, right? So it's the medical problem that you need to go to a professional to diagnose or to help you solve. Maybe it's a problem in your mind that you can't figure out, and so you have to call a counselor or a coach, and we would love to solve it on our own, but we have to go to somebody else to diagnose it or to help us make a plan to fix it. Maybe it's something simple like what happened to me the other day, something in our daily life. It was a problem with the passenger door in our vehicle. And every time I open the door for my bride to let her into the vehicle, there's this loud screeching sound and, and the door as it's pulling away from the vehicle, the, the metal and the plastic in the door are separating from each other. It's not attached like it should and it was making this loud noise. And so it's bothering both of us in a course and it needed to be fixed. And it wasn't something I felt like I could do myself. So I took it into a mechanic, a professional, and they diagnosed the problem. It wasn't all that I thought it was. It was actually more than that. So I did have some clips that needed to be replaced to attach the door better. But when we did that the first time, it didn't completely solve the problem. And so the mechanic said, I need to raise this door up just a little bit. Because you can see the wear and tear on the ground where the door, when it's being pulled out away from the vehicle, you can see it's, it's wearing and tearing on, on the ground. It's, it's too close. And so that's what's causing these clips to break down over time. And so he had to raise the door up just a little bit. No idea how he did that. I couldn't have done it myself. Replace the clips, fix the problem. And now when I open the door for my bride, man, it's, it's working good. You know, sometimes... 
We just need someone to help diagnose the issue. And, and Jesus, this great storyteller that we've been talking about in this teaching series, was amazing not only at telling stories, but transmitting truth through those stories that absolutely diagnose and cure many of our greatest problems. And, and I titled today's message, What's Behind My Biggest Problems? Because we're going to look at a story today that Jesus told, a story so important that it was in three of the four Gospels. It was in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A story that Jesus told that diagnoses what's behind many of our greatest problems in life. And not only that, it, this story in particular foreshadowed the single greatest and most important event in human history. So this is a very important story. A very important story that's in the Bible multiple times. And we're going to look at the version of this story found in Matthew chapter 21. So if you want to follow along in this epic story, you can power on your Bible. Or you can just look up here on the screen as, as we follow along in this story. Matthew chapter 21, the parable of the tenants found in Matthew 21, verse 33. Let me go ahead and read the story to you, and we're going to talk a little bit about it. It says, listen to another parable, Jesus said. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it. He dug a wine press in it, and he built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Now let me pause there for just a brief moment and explain what's, what's going on here. So in, in that culture, it would be very common for an absentee landowner, someone who owns some land in a space, uh, a distance away from where they actually live, to have tenant farmers. And these tenant farmers would get to live on the estate many times, and they would work the estate. And, and because of their work, they would get to keep a portion of the harvest from that land, of the produce, of the profit. They would get to keep a part of that in exchange for caring for the estate and working the land. Now, the owner of the land still owned it. Even though he was an absentee landowner, he wasn't there present doing the work himself, may, may and sometimes live far away, that absentee landowner still absolutely owned the estate and so got to share in the profit. And it was sort of a, a rent for these, these tenants, these tenant farmers to use the land. They, they would give a portion, sometimes half of the profit, half of the harvest would go to the absentee land owner. And this was just common in their culture. They're in the Galilean area. Let's go back to the story so you have an idea of what's, what's happening here. Let's pick up the story in verse 35 that the owner wants to get his share of, of the profit. And this is what happens, verse 35. The tenant seized his servants. They beat one and they killed another and they stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus 
asks this question and he gets this response, verse 41. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Man, what a great story. What an amazing storyteller. Jesus communicates this story and it's, and it's gripping. Man, this will make a great movie. Here you have this owner who creates this beautiful vineyard. He rents it out. He goes away and he entrusts this beautiful vineyard that he has created to these tenants, these farmers. But then when it's time to receive his share of the harvest, he sends his servants and they are mistreated. They're abused and and they're even killed. And he finally sends his son, thinking that surely they'll respect his son, but the The tenant farmers decide if they get rid of the heir, if they get rid of the son, if they kill him, then the whole vineyard will be theirs. And that's exactly what they do. But the end result is the the owner, the father whose son was killed, he comes and Jesus says, what will he do to those farmers? And the answer is obvious. He will bring them to an end. And those listening, they say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. He will destroy them. And and they're, they're probably angry after hearing this story and thinking, this is absolutely wrong what's happening. He owns the vineyard. These are his servants. This is his son. And they've, they've abused him. They've killed him. Of course, they're angry. And they want justice. They want justice. Well, much like a, a boss, and maybe you've had this at your own workplace, a boss who's addressing an issue with a singular employee, but he's addressing the, all the employees at the workplace and And maybe you've been in that hot seat and you know he's really talking about you and it's uncomfortable. He's addressing everyone, but you know he's bringing up a point that affects you. This is how those that were listening would start to feel as Jesus goes on with this story and he applies it as you hear down in verse 42. After he tells this story, Jesus said to them, he says, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew that he was talking about them. They knew. They looked for a way to arrest him but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So Jesus was speaking to these religious leaders and essentially what he was saying is that you have been the the temporary caretakers, the landowners in a sense, the farmers, the tenants of the kingdom of God, this nation of Israel, the people of God. You've been leading them, you've been teaching them, you've been guiding them. And interestingly, Jesus refers to these these people who were sent, these these servants who were sent, and he's referencing the the prophets and and the people that God sent to the nation of Israel. And even though they were obstinate and disobedient and and rejected him and rejected his, his servants, they also would have, as they heard this story, they would have had a couple different passages in their mind as they started to understand what Jesus was talking about because they they knew God's word really well. They probably would have had Psalm 80 or or Isaiah chapter 5 in their minds where it it references verses like this, Isaiah chapter 5 verse 7. God's word says, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. 
The people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked in, and he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. So Jesus was not only referencing what was happening here, but alluding to these key passages in the Old Testament where, where God's people, the nation of Israel, were literally referred to multiple times. In Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, two great examples, referred to as a, a vineyard that God had planted, but the one that did not produce the good fruit that it should. And, and what Jesus is speaking to and addressing here is the rebellion of the nation of Israel. This, this group of religious leaders who have been entrusted with leading God's people and this, this nation has rebelled against God. These leaders have rebelled against God. They've, they've not honored him. They've not done what they should in taking care of God's people. And so Jesus is addressing this. And obviously he's alluding to the greatest event in human history the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, the, the central turning point of, of human history when he talks about this landowner sending his son who was, who was killed. And so this, this classic and amazing parable that Jesus tells is he's addressing the rebellion and the disobedience of these religious leaders in, of the nation of Israel. And he speaks to what is our greatest problems in life, in this story. And, and, and I want to draw out three specific principles as it relates to our greatest issues, our greatest problem, which is this. It's our rebellious and prideful heart. The rejection of God as the leader in an area of our life or over the whole of our life, pushing God away and living for self which creates endless ruin and endless problems in our lives. And there's three specific principles that I see here in this story that I believe will help you to diagnose and also with God's help to cure some of the greatest problems in your life. Because rebellion has consequence. And, and, and some of us here may be saying, well, I'm not rebelling against God. Maybe, maybe you are and, and you know that. But so, many of us would say, well, I, I'm not rebelling against God. I would never do that. But the truth is, underneath a lot of the problems in our life, it's, it's sin. It's a prideful rebellion against God, pushing God's standards, God's expectation, God's word away so that we can do what we want to. And that creates all kinds of ruin in our relationships, with our mental peace, with our joy. It ruins so many things in our life. And so if we can understand it more, if we can get clarity on it, not only will it help us to avoid consequence, but it will help free us up to live in peace and joy and God's love. Rebellion always has consequence. Proverbs 17, 11 says, evildoers foster rebellion against God. The messenger of death will be sent against them. The great author C.S. Lewis said this. He said, a creature revolting against a creator, is revolting against the source of its own powers, including even the power to revolt. It is like the scent of a flower trying to destroy the flower itself. However, the principles inside this story of rebellion can not only diagnose some of the tendencies that we have to rebel against God, but provide helpful insight and how we can surrender to and follow God's ways instead of our own. And so I'm, I'm very excited to share with you these three things. I'm going to begin with this one in, ver in verse 38. Matthew 21, verse 38. Let's go back and read this part of the story again. Matthew 21, 38. Jesus says, But when the tenants saw the Son, 
They said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. Did you see that word, take his inheritance? If you're taking notes today, maybe you just want to even just write that that word down in, in, in your margins of your notes because we're going to talk about that for a moment. They wanted to take what was not their own. They wanted to kill the son so that they could claim something that was not theirs. It was owned by the father. They wanted to claim it for their own. And here's, here's the lesson. Rebellion claims what is not mine. Our rebellious, prideful heart wants to claim what is not ours for ourselves. See, God created your life. I want you to think about this for a moment. God gave you your days. How many opportunities has God provided for you? How many answers to prayer and the resources and the relationships, the finances, the friendships? Every good thing in our life comes from God. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. So all these good things that God has blessed you with, all these amazing things that God's poured into your life and all these great things that God has done, including giving you your life itself. God's been so kind to us. He's been so good to us. And yet our rebellious heart wants to claim what's not ours for ourselves. We can learn from this as Jesus is addressing the sin, the rebellion of these religious leaders here in the nation of Israel. What he's saying to them also applies to us. We can learn principles on what not to do here. What they did is they wanted to claim something that was not theirs for their own benefit, for themselves. When we take God's blessings that he's entrusted to us, blessings that he's given to us, including our, our, our very life, that is given to us to be lived for his glory and we take it for ourselves. This is mine. And we consume it all for our comfort, for our pleasure, for what we want out of life, for our glory, for our credit. It's, it's, it's for us. When, when our whole world starts to point towards our own gratification, that is a sign that we are starting to rebel against God. We're taking what God's giving and we're saying, it's all for me. All my years are for me. All my time is for me. What do I want to do? Everything that is in my life, I'm the owner. I'm the owner. And you have to pause and just ask as a a believer, as a Christian, is that true? Is everything I see really for me or is it for God? Is it for my glory, for for what I get out of life, for my comfort, for my pleasure? Do I really own all that God has entrusted to me? Or am I a manager? You know, I, I had a, <laughs> an interesting experience just trying to get out of the house the other day. When you have a family of six, it just takes some time. You're like, hey, we gotta get out the door. It just takes, takes a little bit. And you have multiple people always running back inside. Hey, I forgot something. I gotta go get it. And, and Jennifer and I both did that this, this last time. We were trying to run out of the house and, and she ran back in at one point and she was in the house and I was outside with the kids. And then, and then she came out and I'm like, oh, I, I got to go get something. Let me, let me check something. And I run inside. And, and when I went back inside, I, I noticed on my desk, which I typically keep cleared off. It's usually a pretty clean landscape. And I, I looked at my desk. I noticed there had been a paper that someone other than me had left out on my desk. And so as, just out of curiosity, as I was walking through the house before we went to leave, I, I went over and I saw this piece of paper and I just caught the word as I was walking up to my desk that said, congratulations. And, and, and I just quickly put two and two together. Jennifer was just in the house by herself, maybe not expecting me to come back in. And she is so good at giving gifts. She, she's just such a good gift giver. 
and she's so creative. And so she's done things like this to me before. She's given me a surprise gift just to show her love. And, and I saw this paper that says congratulations. I was thinking, oh, I, I know what happened. And she, she, she purchased some really neat experience. Congratulations. You know, maybe it's some theme park experience or maybe some getaway. Maybe she ordered some special gift from me off the internet. And congratulations, here's, here's your gift. And I was thinking, she left this on my desk so that when I return home later in the, in the day that I would be surprised and I'd say, oh, babe, thank you so much. What a, what a great gift. And man, it would just be such a cool moment. And I was just picturing all these things and what this gift might be. And I got a little closer and and I looked at the fine print and said, congratulations, your HP printer is now connected to your Wi-Fi. And I thought, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Somebody connected our printer to a device and it, and it caused the printer to print out this sheet of paper. Congratulations. There's no gift coming. There's no vacation. There's no amazing experience. This was not an act of love. This was an accident. And one of the kids probably grabbed the paper thinking it was important and set it on my desk. You know, we, we tend to do that all the time, don't we? We, we? we tend to take something at face value and think, well, this, this must be for me. <laughs> this, this relationship is, is for me. This, this experience is for me. This resource, this financial blessing, this thing, it's, it's all for me. This life that I've been given, it's all for me. The truth is God does want to bless you, to care for you. He loves to give good gifts to his kids. He wants you to enjoy them so that you will return praise and credit to your father. And he does want to bless you, but not just for your own consumption. He wants to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. And I would contend one of the greatest barriers to God's blessing in many of our lives is that we would consume that blessing 100% on ourselves. And God wants to bless you. But perhaps some of his greatest blessings are being withheld until you learn to be a blessing to others, to return to God what's his, to bless him, to thank him for what is his. And here's something I would love for you to write down. God owns it all, and I'm a manager. Write that down. God, God owns it all. My, my whole life, my time, my years, everything is his, and I'm a manager. Instead of saying, what do I want with my time and my future and my career? What if you started saying, God, what pleases you? I serve at your pleasure. What do you want out of my life? What if instead of asking things like, what do I want to do with my things, my, my stuff, my money, what do I want to do? What if instead you started saying, God, it's all yours. How do you want me to manage this and use this for your glory? See, God owns it all and I'm a manager. The vineyard of your life is owned by God Almighty. And I'm a manager and I'm managing this life until Jesus comes back or until I finish my race and I go stand before him and I'm accountable. I'm accountable. That's what I want you to hear. I'm accountable. And those servants in that vineyard that Jesus was talking about and, and ultimately those religious leaders in the nation of Israel, they would be accountable. And Jesus would want you to know that you're accountable for everything that he's entrusted to you. You're a manager for him. And it sets you free. It sets you free once you start to view life this way, that, it's, that my life is not about me. It's not mine. I'm not the owner. I'm a manager. I've been entrusted with, with this family. I've been entrusted with this time. I've been entrusted with these abilities or this career or these financial resources. It sets you free to really have joy because then you're not clinging onto life as if you were the owner and it was all on you. It sets you free to be generous. It sets you free to have joy. But a lot of the, the discontent in our life comes because we're not grateful for all that God's given 
We're not recognizing and acknowledging the generosity of God. It was Francis Schaeffer who said, the beginning of man's rebellion against God was and is the lack of a thankful heart. Do you have a thankful heart for all that God has done in your life? We're managers. He's the owner. Are you grateful? Part of our prideful, rebellious tendencies, just like the people that Jesus was directly addressing, part of our prideful, rebellious tendencies is to take what is not ours. And ultimately, they would crucify the Son of God. They would crucify him. That's where rebellion leads. It's a rejection of God. It's claiming what's not ours, pushing away God so we can be the center, so we can be on the throne. The second lesson that that I I learned from this amazing story that Jesus told as we study what this story meant and what, what Jesus was talking about and what we can learn about our own lives comes from Matthew chapter 21, verse 35. It says, the tenant seized his servants. They beat one, they killed another, and they stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and they treated those tenants the same way. So these servants are sent to represent the owner, to collect the portion of the harvest that he was due. But they rejected them. And Jesus, many biblical scholars believe he was referencing the prophets, the teachers who were sent to the nation of Israel to confront them in their sin. In fact, later on in the book of Matthew, Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. So Jesus directly addresses later on in Matthew, just a couple chapters later, what he's alluding to here in this parable. The prophets, the people that were sent to Israel to confront sin. And they were, many of them, killed and, and persecuted. And, and here, here's a principle of rebellion against God that we can learn from and that we can guard against in our own lives. Write this down. Rebellion hurts others for self-gain. Rebellion hurts others for self-gain. These religious leaders had made this, this wonderful and beautiful vineyard, this kingdom of God. They'd really made it about themselves. Even to the detriment of others who were following them and under their care. You know, we can tend to do the same thing in our prideful rebellion against God as we can tend to put ourselves first and live for our gain at the expense of others. Sometimes we can hurt or hinder others in our anger with unkind words that we say. Sometimes it's in our selfishness that we can take advantage of others to put ourselves ahead. We disadvantage others so that we can have an advantage. Sometimes in, in the protection of ourselves, out of, out of fear or insecurity, we can abandon or neglect others or prior commitments that we have made. There's so many examples that we could address here, but self-centeredness means that God is not at the center. But when God is at the center of our life, it, it pushes away in humility, it pushes away self-centeredness. And one of the lessons that I can see as I look further into this story and what Jesus is addressing has happened with these Jewish religious leaders is that they had put themselves first. They had hindered and hurt others, even persecuting and executing these prophets of God that were sent to them to help them. They, They hurt others because they were at the center. They didn't want to hear what God had to say. They put others aside and self centeredness hurts others. And here's the lesson. My life is not about me. It's for God's glory. And if you could just get that, that my life is not about me. Write it down, but get it in your heart. It's not about you. It's, it's about God. And if you just wake up every day and say, you know, it's not about me today. 
It's not about me. It's about God. It's about his glory and giving him credit. Man, it'll be a, a game changer in how you treat others and how you view God. The third and final lesson that I see from this, this story comes from Matthew chapter 21, down in verse 39, where it says, so they took him, they took the son, they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. They killed him. Verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? That's Jesus' questions. He says, they rejected the son, they killed the son. How do you think the father feels about that? When the landowner returns, when the father returns, and they've, they've persecuted his servants, they've rejected his son, they've killed him, how does he feel about that? What will he do? And Jesus is a... a addressing their outright rejection. He's foreshadowing the rejection of himself from the nation of Israel. They literally, these religious leaders would, would hand Jesus over to the Roman authorities to be executed on a cross. And Jesus is foreshadowing what will be the turning point of human history, the execution and then the eventual resurrection of Jesus Christ, the savior of all of mankind who dies for all of our sins on the cross. And this, this epic moment in human history, Jesus is pointing to that through this story, this great story. And, and really, if you think about all the ways that this story ties into the past of the nation of Israel, to their future, the depth of this, this lesson, this story, it's amazing how gifted and how effective of a storyteller that Jesus was. And, and it says, if you, as those verses that we just read, they knew they knew that Jesus was talking about them. They were drawing conclusions from his story based on what he said. So he was an effective storyteller. But his stories were not just great stories. They transmitted truth. Truth to diagnose what's going on in our hearts, in their hearts, but also can happen in our hearts. And it also leads to a cure. Because you can't get to a cure most often until you diagnose the problem. And Jesus is pointing to their rebellious heart, what they had done to the prophets, what they would do to Jesus, the son. And, and you and I may say, well, I would never do something like that. But here's, here's what a prideful, rebellious heart does. Write it down. This is the third lesson. Rebellion rejects God's authority. We can, we can tend to reject God's authority in an area of our life. And you may say, well, I would never do that. I honor God. He's the authority. I know he's in control. But we still can have the tendency to do that in, in the pridefulness of our, of our heart. We can tend to do that in areas of our life where we reject God's authority. No, I'm going to make the decision here. I'm going to determine what's right, not God's word, not God's authority. I'm going to be the authority in this area of our life and people do it all the time. We reject God's authority. And we will be accountable for our actions. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 15 says, but if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. I heard one of our church experience pastors say this statement one time that if you're not broken before God, you will be broken by God. And I, and I love that statement. And Jesus, this is what he's saying, is that, that he will eventually come. He asked that question, what, what will the father do? What will the owner do when he comes back to his vineyard that he owns? And his servants have been rejected his own son has been executed what will he do he's he's alluding to the accountability of God the authority of God who has the ability to and the authority to hold us accountable and he's speaking to those religious leaders but he's also speaking to us 
the authority of God and our tendency to reject it and to push it away. Jesus goes on and when he's explaining this, this parable, he's, he's connecting and tying in this parable. He talks about the cornerstone. Now, biblical scholars, and I've heard a different number of different perspectives on the cornerstone and what that meant, but it, it, they all kind of come back to the same conclusion and what Jesus was clearly referring to. You know, it, it could have been referring to a, a, an actual stone in a corner. It's one of the first stones, perhaps the first stone set in a building project, and, and all the other stones are, are lined up from the different walls, lined up off that initial stone. It, it could have meant, you know, it was the first and the initial, the most prominent stone. It could also be referring to sometimes an odd-shaped, a wedge-shaped stone that, that a lot of times the builders, when they're building and they're putting all these stones in, in order in the wall, they might say, this one's a little odd-shaped. Let's set this one aside. It's, it's not usable. It's, it's not in the shape of the others. Let's set it aside. But then perhaps when they're building maybe a doorway or an arch in the building, and they, and they, need, they need a stone at the, at the very center to to be not only a prominent stone, to, to be a, a, a figurehead stone, but to also hold together all the ascending stones on that archway. And, and then they look in that stone that they had rejected previously that had been tossed aside because it wasn't a perfect square. It didn't fit on the building and the constructing of the walls. But here they need, a, they need an odd shape. They need a, a wedge-shaped stone to put at the, at the center. And, and perhaps they'd grab a stone like that and put it at the very center of this arch and it would be kind of a cornerstone to hold the other stones in place. You know, biblical scholars have different interpretations of what they think this cornerstone actually meant. But I Either way, they all come to the same conclusion. It was a stone that was of prominence, of importance. It was the most important, most precious stone that held the others together or that the others were aligned up by. It was the initial one, the first one. It was the greatest one. Although Jesus says it's the stone that the builders rejected. Maybe it didn't fit like all the others. It was rejected, but then it became the capstone, the cornerstone the primary stone and what Jesus is saying to and alluding to here in the story is that Jesus was rejected by man. He was rejected by these religious leaders. He was executed, but he came the cornerstone. That's the message of the gospel that Jesus is the cornerstone. And although we we reject his authority in our lives, he is the authority for us. I think back to when I was 19 years old and I was at a dude ranch. I was at a student camp, a student trained to be a student pastor and, and, and I was there enjoying the, the week and it was a really fun experience. I got to ride a bull. I lasted like two and a half seconds. That was a great experience. Like, I got to enjoy being on this dude ranch out in Wyoming in the middle of nowhere. It was, it was amazing. Uh, the, the views, the experiences, it was all great. But there, there was one thing that was really peculiar about this particular camp. They had a, a dinner bell right in the middle of the camp. And it was so tempting to want to go ring this dinner bell for all these high schoolers and middle schoolers that are running around the camp. It was just really tempting because it's right there in the center of the camp. And, and I'm assuming that that had happened another number of times that people rang the dinner bell when it was not time to eat. And it caused a problem. So whoever it was in, in authority came up with a, a rule in this camp that if you rang the dinner bell when it was not time to eat, when it was not dinner, then you would be thrown in the horse trough. And if you would take a peek inside the horse trough, it was this trough that the horses drank from that was filled with this water and it was not good looking water. I mean, it, it was gross looking. It had been in there a while. Those horses had slopped up this water. I mean, it was, it was nasty. You did not, it's not a place you're gonna go to take a swim, or take a bath. I mean, it was just gross. So nobody wanted to be thrown in. And so it kept people away from the bell. Well, I was 19 years old and don't, don't judge me, but my friend and I, we decided that we were gonna ring that bell and see if we can get away with it without being thrown in the horse trough. 
So we waited for the perfect timing, which was when all the students and all the counselors and all the people that were there for the camp, all the authorities, everybody went in to the chapel service for this camp chapel service. And we snuck out and we were by ourselves in the middle of the camp. And we, we look around and we don't see anybody there to catch us. So we both put a hand on this rope. And we rang that thing as loud as we could. We rang, we rang that bell and that, that sound echoed throughout the camp. And man, we took off running because we knew what would happen. And sure enough, we look over our shoulder and those big old doors for that chapel opened up and you saw dozens of students, adults, everybody pouring out of this chapel looking for who rang the dinner bell because they were on a mob mission. They were gonna find that person or persons and they were gonna throw them in that horse trough. And we did not want that to happen. So we're running all throughout the camp. We're running through buildings. We're running back and forth and, and, and people are running everywhere. They don't know who did it. They didn't see, but it's chaos because they want to find that person. Everybody's chasing everybody. It's just, it's insane. And we're running all over the place. There's people chasing us. There's people chasing others. No one really knows. And so we're, we're trying to just avoid being caught by a mob. And, and we finally get cornered into this small space between two different buildings. And we realize that we're stuck and all of a sudden other people start pouring in through this chase, start pouring into this space. No one yet has identified who rang the bell, but they are hungry to throw somebody in this trough. And again, don't judge me. I don't know what it was. It was just instinct. But I, but I, but I saw this, this guy that came into this space and, and, and he was one of the camp counselors. And, and he was the guy that all week long, he'd been busting everybody. If they just slightly crossed the line in any of the rules. You know, they, they, ate their, their, they ate too much food. They got two dinner rolls instead of one. I mean, just anything, just so particular. And he had this whistle. He had this whistle that he would blow anytime anyone did anything wrong. And if they're out of line, man, he'd blow that whistle. And it just was one of those things that was kind of annoying, but it was happening all throughout the week. And that was just who he was. And, and he comes into this space because there's a mob and he starts blowing his whistle. And he's blowing this whistle and he's trying to figure out who it is. And, and it was just instinct. I don't know. I don't know what happened. It came over me, but I just, I just pointed to him. And the whole crowd turned to him. And they ran towards this guy that was blowing the whistle, this camp counselor. They grabbed him. They threw him on their shoulders. I'm not making this up. They, they grabbed him and they, they marched him over to the horse trough. And they threw him into the horse trough. And I'm thinking, no way did that work. How did that happen? He paid the price for what we had done. He paid the price for what we had done. And Jesus, the cornerstone, the one who was rejected, who was executed, not just by those religious leaders at that time, but who's been rejected by us here and now through our sins. We've all sinned. We've all pushed him away. He's now become the cornerstone, the most important part of the vineyard, the kingdom of God of all eternity. Jesus, the son of God, the name above all names, he's become the most important one and he paid the price for your sins, your rebellious, sinful heart. I don't want you to feel bad today about, the, about all the mistakes that you've made, but I want any kind of repentance that could come out of today to say, you know what, I have done those things. I've been that person. I've rejected God. I've, I've, I've lived for my own glory. I've tried to take what was not mine. I, I've tried to put myself in the center. And listen, let that lead to repentance. The acknowledgement that we will be accountable, but also that the son who was rejected has now become the cornerstone, has done all that he did and went through all he did for you because he loved you so much. So I'd like you to write this statement down that God has the authority 
and he will have the last word. He will have the last word. I was talking to a woman uh, just recently whose husband had left her and she was broken and she was so sad about what had happened and he had mistreated her and, and left. And, and uh, I was trying to encourage her and you know, was able to pray with her and give her some words of encouragement. But I also reminded her that your husband, he did the wrong thing and he will be accountable to God. He'll be accountable just as you will for your sin, just as I will for my sin. But praise God, the end of the story is not just that we have sin and the wages of sin is death and that we'll be accountable for our sin. But that the conclusion of and the greatest part of the story is that the stone that the builders rejected, Jesus, the one who was rejected and spit upon and beaten and crucified, has become the cornerstone, the central part of the building. He's become, he's become for you the saving grace when you repent from your sin and receive Jesus in your life and place your faith in him. Not only does he forgive you of all your rebellious ways and all your pride and all your sin, but by his grace, he covers you and receives you and even adopts you into the family so that you have an inheritance in the vineyard of God, the great kingdom of God. That is the grace of God in our life. So let me wrap up today by asking you this question. What rebellious ways do you need to turn from? What sin in your life have you, have you taken ownership of in your life and said, no, God, this is, this is about me, this is mine. What, what area have you said, this is about my glory, not yours, God? What area have you pushed God's authority away and rejected the son, rejected Jesus? If there's any area in your life that, that God's bringing to mind, the Holy Spirit's bringing to mind, there's no better time than now to turn that over to Jesus. And we're gonna pray. And I wanna give you a moment just to turn that over to Jesus and say, Lord, I am sorry. You are the owner of my life. You are the leader of my life. I don't wanna reject you, but I wanna submit to you and surrender to you. And I want my life to be lived for your glory. Right on? Right on. Come on, let's pray together. Jesus, you are the authority. You are the name above all names. You are the king over all, all things. And Jesus, we just wanna to recognize today that you are the cornerstone. You are the center. You are the most prominent part of our lives. And so Jesus, we, we wanna acknowledge that. But also God, we wanna acknowledge that we're prone to wander. We're prone to wander into sinfulness and a prideful, rebellious heart where we, we take ownership of what, what's not ours. It's what we're, we've been entrusted with, what we're managers of, and we, we tend to take ownership of that. We also acknowledge that we tend to live for our own glory, even to the detriment of others. We live for self and gain of our own. And we tend to reject you, Jesus, and to reject your authority in some area of our life so that we can do what we want to do. And so we confess all these things today. And right now, while you're praying, may just take a moment and just ask God, is there any area in me that you wanna expose, any rebelliousness in me? And just ask him that right now. It's a great prayer to take into your time alone with God this week. And just ask, is there anything in me, Holy Spirit, that you would wanna expose that's become about me when it should be about you? God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your mercy and that every, every day your mercies are new. We thank you for that. So God, as we go into this new day ahead, this next week ahead that you've given us, God, I pray that we would live for your glory, that we'd see ourselves as managers and, and your kingdom, your vineyard, that we, we don't own it. It's not, it's not for us, it's for you, God. It's for your glory and we wanna live our lives. All things, do all things for your glory. 
And God, we want to surrender and submit to your authority in all things. And so, Lord, we, we give our lives to you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you mean to us. And we thank you for your grace and your love in our lives. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks again for joining us at Church Experience. We'd love to hear what you thought about today's service. Head over to churchexperience.tv slash connect. Bring your questions, your comments, your prayer requests. Love to hear from you. Love to get back to you. And of course, we'd love to be praying for you. We hope to see each and every one of you back here next week for week one of Top of the Charts.